We are starting, though, with some preliminary numbers. They were released earlier today from the BC Coroner's Service in this province, showing communities throughout BC are continually being devastated by deaths, all due to unregulated drugs, that in the first four months of 2023, 814 lives have been lost. Lisa Lapointe joins us now, BC's Chief Coroner. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Well, thanks for the invitation, Jill. I appreciate it. Uh, it seems like every time we talk about these numbers, uh, things are continuing uh, to be uh, just devastating when it comes to the lives lost. Uh, are, are we seeing the same types of drugs, the same uh, kind of factors leading to these deaths? Yes, actually, from the beginning of this crisis, um, fentanyl has been the main driver. Uh, fent- illicit fentanyl was introduced to the province's uh, drug black market in 2013, and uh, since then has predominated uh, in terms of the deaths that we've seen. More than 80% of deaths involve fentanyl. Uh, there's car fentanyl, there's other fentanyl analogs. Uh, we now see, as, as people have heard more recently, xylazine, benzodiazepines. So, you know, really this is a consequence of a really toxic black market. And also I think a, a consequence of the number of people in our province who are reliant on that black market. And estimates are that uh, there are over 100,000 people um, with either diagnosed opioid use disorder or, uh, or undiagnosed opioid use disorder, all of those people are at risk of dying. Hmm. Uh, the numbers in the release today also show a, a, a smaller number when you're talking about when it says illicit fentanyl continues to be the, the most lethal driver of these deaths. Uh, but uh, so going from it being detected in 86% of the deaths in 2022 and 79% of the deaths so far this year, do you know what's caused or is it because we're still only at May of this year or why we might see that decline? Yeah, I, I'm I'm really careful not to draw conclusions based on a few months because we know over a year, you know, we do see numbers shift uh, to some degree or another. Um, we are seeing benzodiazepines certainly present. Cocaine continues to be, um, you know, one of the leading um, toxic drugs that we find in postmortem testing. Um, methamphetamines are present as well. So, so really, it's these unregulated drugs that the market um, is, you know, that's what's available, that's what people are buying, and those are what we're finding in postmortem testing. Uh, there have been a, a lot of communities coming forward or local councils and communities coming forward in the past few days and weeks that are, are trying to stop the use of illicit drugs in public, saying that communities don't want to see people using drugs in parks and playgrounds in open public areas. What are your thoughts on, on community civic councils, for the most part, taking that stance and asking the province that they do something uh, to stop that as well? Yeah, it's you know it certainly is um, a, an issue that that we're hearing a lot about. We know from data that most people die in a private place. People are using in homes, primarily in their own home, and they are dying there. Uh, sometimes a friend's home, sometimes it's a hotel or a motel, but primarily in private residences. Um, that is a huge, huge risk. One of the goals of decriminalization was to help people uh, understand that this is a health condition, that people who use drugs, we want to give them the the courage 
to come forward, that they will not be stigmatized, that they will not be shamed. So I am very concerned that these conversations we're hearing right now are really just pushing people back into dark corners. Uh, you know, youth who are hearing their parents and their, their community leaders stigmatize people who use drugs, dehumanize people who use drugs, they are not going to ask for help. So this conversation makes me very fearful that uh, we are continuing to see that that war on people who use drugs that has led us, frankly, to where we are today, where we have lost more than 12,000 people in our province uh, to substance use. Whether people are actually using in parks more, uh, I don't know. I, I am asking. Nobody seems to know. It's certainly a rumor. There's certainly a lot of fear being spread. Um, I would suggest that likely the only people that would be using drugs publicly, and again, I just want to confirm, people do not shoot up drugs. That's a common term that we see. People do not inject drugs anymore. The predominant use of drugs is, is smoking. Uh, so again, that narrative, you know, there's this picture in people's minds that it's that's just so, so, um, there's these stereotypes that are just so damaging. Uh, but that people who would be using drugs in a public place are people who don't have a home, uh, people who are precariously stigmatized. So now not only are we stigmatizing and um, marginalizing people who are suffering from a complex health issue, but we're stigmatizing and marginalizing people who are precariously housed or unhoused. And I, it makes me sad, frankly. It makes me tremendously sad because those are people. And as much as there may be efforts to dehumanize them uh, and use words that uh, dehumanize them, they are people and they all belong to somebody. Right. And, and I think in a lot of ways or, or a lot of the conversation, at least that I've heard, um, it's not so much to dehumanize somebody, but it's it's questioning decriminalization without other supports, without treatment beds available, without other options. That that decriminalization it's, it itself obviously isn't isn't solving the problem because here we are today talking about these number of deaths. But it's I guess it's this frustration that that nothing is being done or that the same amount of attention isn't being placed on treatment and on helping people not do drugs. Yeah, so, so there's, you know, I could, there's so many things to unpack there, but, um, absolutely there is an emphasis on treatment, uh, prescribed treatments and, and other treatments. The challenge is there are over 100,000 people in this province either diagnosed with an opioid use disorder or undiagnosed, but, but who are experiencing opioid use disorder. We don't have treatment facilities for that many people. We don't actually know outcomes for people who access those facilities. That's not something that has been um, publicly reported or is publicly available. Um, we know that retention on, on prescribed treatment um, is challenging because oftentimes we make it very, very difficult. So I, from where I sit, and I can tell you I am in meetings constantly on this topic, there are significant efforts being made in the area of treatment. But going back to the recommendation from our last death review panel, which was comprised of subject matter experts with significant knowledge on this topic, um, 
the only way to keep people alive while we try to ramp up all of the treatment needs is to separate them from the toxic drug supply. And that is the, that is the goal with Safer Supply, to keep people alive, to separate them from the toxic drug supply. And frankly, to reduce the dependency um, of people in our province on a organized crime black market. That is the only thing flourishing right now. I want to get your your take on something as well, and this was also brought up in the release from the uh, the BC representative for children and youth. There was a quote from Jennifer Charles Charlesworth saying uh, that based on reports of critical injuries and deaths that my office reviews every month, we have not seen any indication that youth are using from diverted supply. I, I'm I'm hoping to get your response to this, and this was Pierre Poliev talking to Mike Smith on the Mike Smith Show yesterday. What happens is people get bored of the drugs and they want something stronger. The hydromorphine, while it's strong enough to be like heroin, is not strong enough to keep people high. So what they do is they sell it to kids. And then they use the profits to buy illicit fentanyl, which causes their overdose death. Now, those kids then use the hydromorphine for seven or eight weeks until it's not strong enough for them. And then they start selling it in order to buy fentanyl themselves and they die as well. And this cycle goes on and on and on. Is there any truth to that? No. Um, I've heard that. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I struggle with why anybody would believe anything that isn't backed by evidence, data, or science um, that is, uh, relies on anonymous anecdotes. Um, you know, my gosh, we've seen that in our neighbors to the south in the past. Um, we can't rely on, on rumor. So we know for a fact that people are not dying, including children. The rates of death amongst those under 19 have not increased at all um, since Safer Supply was introduced. And, and Safer Supply is not widespread across our province. I think that's another myth. Um, it is It is you know, compared to the number of people who use substances, very few have access to safer supply. Um, but youth are not dying as a result of hydromorphone. And I have had conversations with uh, the representative for children and youth, and she is also very aware of this issue. And they are monitoring reports to their office very closely. And of course, she has access to medical records and, and emergency records, as do we. Um, and she is very clear that they have seen zero evidence of youth being diagnosed with opioid use disorder as a result of hydromorphone use. So um, it's frustrating that people make claims and um, we're not requiring them to back up those claims with any evidence, but the evidence absolutely does not support the, the, uh, what, what uh, Mr. Polyev is saying. All right. Uh, one other question for you. Just in the numbers released today, uh, the highest rates of death so far this year have been in Northern Health. Do you know why? No, you know, I mean, we, I, this is something that we've seen for a few months now. I, one of the challenges is um, access to services. Remote communities struggle with access to services. So if people are using it in a small community, they may have to, even if they're tr- attempting to get treatment, whether it's prescribed or otherwise, may have to travel long distances. That's one of the thoughts that complicates a, a health response in the north. Uh, but I think really what it tells us that we have this um, stereotype, and we do frequently see people in the downtown, pictures of people in the downtown east side as if that is the epicenter of this crisis. And we know that 300 people died in that neighborhood last year as a result of drug toxicity, and it is a very vulnerable neighborhood. But 2,300 people died in our province. So 2,000 people died 
elsewhere. So I think what, what that shows, the, these rates that we're seeing in the north and these high rates in Terrace, Merritt, Hope, Prince George, this is a provincial crisis. Uh, fentanyl is across our province. Safer supply is not across our province. This crisis is not being driven in any shape or form by safer supply. This crisis is being driven by fentanyl in communities big and small. And as much as I say it, and I, I'm not sure people really understand this, people from all walks of life, people who work, people who go to school, people with families, uh, they, are, they are people just like us. And I, I, I wish if people could un- understand one thing, we are talking about people who are just like us, whether they live in the downtown east side or elsewhere. And, uh, and I find some of the dehumanizing language that we've seen um, really, really disappointing. All right, Chief Coroner LaPointe, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. I appreciate it. Well, imagine you are at home, you are recovering from a recent surgery, and all of a sudden you notice that parts of the ceiling are falling down around you. Well, that is a claim that is made in a civil claim that has been put forward by Carmela De Benedetto. And just take a listen to a little bit of what she told Global News. I heard this big, loud noise and I couldn't figure out because I was all droggy. And then I looked up and I saw the ceiling kind of open up and all the concrete um, ceiling was dropping all over the place and uh, I just jumped out of bed hanging on to my stitches and ran out to the front door the door over here and um, and I and I still it was all falling down and then I was so shocked and then it started breaking up into the living room as well I ran outside at that point and called the fire department and the fire department came in and they were pretty shocked at what they saw. Um, I called Strata and Strata sent uh, Salterra here, which are the um, developers. They came in. All right. So former BC Attorney General and Senior Counsel for Boughton Law, Wally Opal, is representing Carmela and he joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for joining the show. Always good to be with you, Jill. Can you give us a bit more of the background? We heard a little bit there uh, from what your client says happened. How did things unfold at that point? Well, first of all, she buys a new condo for $889,900, almost a million dollars. It's brand new. Two weeks after she moves in, she's lying in bed, as she just described, and the concrete ceiling falls on top of her. She's traumatized. She runs frantically into the the bed or into the kitchen or living room and the ceiling there is collapsing as well. So she's just recovering from surgery. She's a senior citizen. She's a grandmother and she buys this place thinking this will be comfortable for her to live where she can entertain her grandkids. So in any event, she complains to the developer, Salterra, and uh, they say, okay, well, uh, we'll fix it for you. Uh, she doesn't want to go back into that unit under any circumstances because the emotional and trauma uh, that she's experienced. But in any event, they said, well, we'll fix it. And uh, so they fixed it, and they sent her a letter saying, um, our project engineer tells us that your unit is safe for occupancy. Meanwhile, she goes in there, and there are more cracks in the ceiling. So then she came to us, and we look, we want to settle the thing, and... and uh, so we've gone to the lawyers for the developer and said, look, 
why don't you come up with a fair offer? She doesn't want to make a profit from this. All she wants to do is put in, put in the same position as she would have had she lived there peacefully uh, after, after agreeing to a uh, purchase price of, of close to a million dollars. So that's where we are. And uh, the, the developer hasn't, we, in our view, come up with a fair solution, and we'd like, we'd like that. She doesn't want to go into court, but she was forced to go into court, and in court they've denied any fault, and that's where we are. So, uh, so the developer has responded to this, saying that it is important to note that the technical issue that caused some concrete and concrete seal to spall off the ceiling in Miss De Benedetto's unit was, while very unfortunate, was isolated to the one unit. And it says, when it was reported to us in August of 2021, we immediately made arrangements for alternate accommodation and commenced repairs on her unit, which were fully complete by September 15th, 2021. Uh, so. Even with that, is she still not comfortable going back into that condo? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First is that uh, they say that they made a uh, that they repaired it. In fact, there are more cracks in it that came, and she she's photographed the uh, the cracks. So it really wasn't done for anyone's satisfaction, even though their engineer says it was. And secondly, you know, you, you can't expect a woman her age uh, to go back and and move into that building move into that unit uh, in an uneventful way and expect nothing has happened i mean there there's something more to it than that if the developer had been at least bit compassionate and uh, understood her predicament and and being uh, and understood her her situation uh, it would have been better i mean i'd be more sympathetic to what the developer is saying look as i said a moment ago she doesn't want to make a profit from this she wants to be treated fairly the last thing she wants is to go into court, and she's extremely emotional uh, about this. When she did an interview last night with Global, she uh, called me. She's she just traumatized, and it was a huge emotional event for her to even talk about this. So that's all she wants is some some respect and be treated fairly. Right. But the, so Saltera, though, also says that Saltera says they offered to repurchase her unit or provide her another unit in the building. And they said that they were under the impression that she was expressing confidence in the building by wanting to take a unit on a higher floor. Yeah, she she would move to another uh, unit in the building away from that. unit, But uh, but she doesn't want to pay more for another unit. And that's what they said. OK, give us mm-hmm. another thirty thousand dollars. And we'll uh, plus tax, and we'll move you into another unit. And we hardly think that's fair. So uh, you know, she doesn't. She doesn't. She's not critical of Salterra, other than the fact that she believes uh, that the work here wasn't done according to standard. And I think the evidence is clear. And Salterra has to admit fault to that. And and as I said a moment ago, uh, Jill, we're prepared to sit down with Salterra and their counsel. And uh, so if we can see if we can come up with a fair resolution, a fair decision. She doesn't want to profit from it. She just wants a safe place to live at her stage in life. Right. And, and I understand, too. So she's been living in a hotel and Saltera has been paying for her to live in a hotel? No, only for a brief period of time they did. And, uh, and then they stopped that. Okay. But uh, they did for, I think, six weeks or eight weeks or something like that. But in the meantime, the, ma- the matter is proceeding uh, solely through the courts. And again, we don't want to go to court 
Carmela doesn't want to go to court. Uh, all we want to do is uh, sit down, even with an independent third party, to see if we can resolve this. So that's all she wants is fairness and, and a resolution. Right. And But when, when you say, too, that she's not looking to make a profit, because in, in no. their statement as well, Saltera said that they did include an offer to repurchase her unit. So, so why couldn't she just take that offer? Well, she doesn't. Under no circumstances will she go back and live in that same unit. I think we can understand that, that a reasonable person wouldn't expect her to go back and live in that same unit where the ceiling collapsed on you while you're in bed. Right. So that's a fair position for her to take. But she said, okay, give me another unit. There's another one she said. said, Well, you can only have that one if you pay us 30000 more. And I would have thought that, you know, given what she's gone through, that maybe they would have done a fair exchange. She didn't agree to that. So that's where we are. Right. But did they offer to repurchase her unit for what she paid for it? Well, that's somewhat misleading. Uh, The fact is she did it on a pre-sale, but by the time she moved into it, the unit had appreciated in value. So, So to say, well, we'll pay, we'll give you what you paid for it, is not entirely a fair offer. Because uh, in the meantime, the the price has gone up, so they haven't really taken that into consideration. So, yeah. All right, and you you say that she doesn't really want to go to court. So, what do you do next? Well, we are in court. We are going to go to court, and uh, but at the same time, even at this stage, two years after the event, uh, we're prepared to sit down with them and say, "Hey, look, let's sit down and reach a middle ground, and let's see if we can reach something." Look, we want her to be happy, and we want the uh, we want Salterra to come up with a fair resolution. She doesn't want revenge against uh, Salterra, and she's not. She's not really having. Uh, well, she's upset at Salterra, obviously, and anybody would be. But uh, we're prepared to sit down with them and, and negotiate. So, yeah. All right. Well, it's a very interesting case. So we'll, yeah. uh, I'm sure, follow up. But we'll leave it there for today, Wally. Thank you. Always good to be with you, Joe. We talk about the price of housing quite a lot. Housing affordability, certainly a topic that is on the minds of many. A new report, though, a new study takes a look at the role government fees play in the purchase price of rentals, of housing, and it dives pretty deep into what those numbers look like. Paul Sullivan is a BC property tax expert, also principal and regional leader for Ryan ULC, which is an award-winning global tax services and software provider. And Paul is with us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Jill. Pleasure to be on board. This is a report that's uh, the title across the top says, Are Canadian Governments a Vampire in Housing Affordability? Can you talk a little bit more about what I'm thinking was a very um, purposeful or uh, the use of the word vampire? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I think Canadians are just feeling like they're being suck dry on taxation and delays and efficiency in our society. And, you know, our, one of the number one concerns in society is housing, whether you're a renter or you're, you're a wannabe home buyer. And when you start to think about a, a third of your purchase prices going to those government fees and taxes or a third of your rental per month as, as a result of these taxes on development, it, it, it makes you think about what, what role is government doing in making housing affordability. 
So you take a look at a new Vancouver area condo. So taking a look at an 800 square foot condo and what that would cost. So if it has a price point, a price of $840,000, what kind of fees are we looking at in something like that? Well, yeah, so we, we looked at this in uh, 2016, and that was the price of, a, of an 800-square-foot condo, and that drove about a $220,000 charge. Now, if we roll forward and the price of condos have gone up and the price of land has gone up, but also the amount of new taxation that's being imposed on development land is driving government's participation to 30% of the cost. So. Now, government taxation is one of the most identifiable causes of housing price increase. And, you know, just think about it. We've got additional school tax. We have an empty home tax. We have additional property transfer tax. We have a speculation and vacancy tax. We have commercial taxation on residential development land, let alone GST, DCL, DCCs. It's an endless list, and, and it's an endless time delay in getting housing to the market and we have to change the way we're going about building homes and getting them approved because we need them faster and we need them cheaper and government's not helping. And when you talk about the list of taxes, then are you looking at all levels of government or some uh, more taking more than, or uh, more of the culprit than others? Well, I I don't think there's any innocent party in this and uh, we can, we can start to put labels against the taxes. I mean, this looks like a GST 5%. And that goes on all, all new homes, whether it's rental or development. Let's go down to the municipal level. So, of course, that's federal. We go down to the municipal level. Who would have thought that empty home tax would apply to development land? Who would have thought it would take five years to get a development site ready for development for building rental housing? And you're going to pay that tax and add that cost to those units once they're built. And that's what's happening here. And so all levels of government, municipal, provincial and federal, have all got their finger in the pie on this thing. Uh, One of the numbers as well in this report uh, says that, so for Vancouver, a single family home buyer, the government fees, the charges, the regulatory costs, uh, the number it says is 63% of the final sale cost of a new single detached home. That seems like a huge number. Yeah, okay, so that's not my report. That's the C.D. Howe report. Um, And so what they're saying on a $2 million house is $1.3 million dollars is a result of, of government. And what they're doing, and, and, and something I haven't done, is they're taking the time value of money. So mm. how much cost does it add to carry these properties, this land, until it gets its permit for development? How much does land use policy, i.e. density or ALR, or those types of policies drive up land? And they're also considering the tax from labor and materials that goes into the development of homes. So if you put those fits into my analysis, it doubles my numbers. Mine was just strictly a tax against development, not all the other taxes these other studies have covered. All right. So going back to the findings in your study as well, because I know it looks at home buyers. It also looks at renters. What does that look like then, say, over the period of a mortgage or the period of somebody's renting for a certain amount in that how much they're actually spending in those fees? Yeah, so, so this is a, a bit of a shocker. And um, approximately a third, again, of, of your monthly rent. Now, unfortunately for us, uh, a, t- a typical 675-square-foot apartment in Vancouver rents for an astounding $2,700 a month. And these costs, amortized over a 10-year period, is $882 per month. So if your $2,700 rent, 
$880 as a result of taxes. Now, you, you also poked on another interesting point. Let's go back to the homeowners, the people buying homes. Well, they're getting mortgages as 25-year amortizations. So the $300,000 in taxes built into their home purchase is over the life of their mortgage, and it doubles it. So those consumers are actually paying more like $600,000 by the time they get out of debt on their home as a result of these taxes. Uh, you mentioned the GST and uh, that one of the solutions, although not a solution for the whole thing, but what is something that could help ease this would be removing the federal GST on, on new rental units or exemptions for first-time homebuyers. Uh, what else do you did you put in this report or what else did the findings show that could potentially bring these fees down? Yeah, well, I mean, time. Time is a big thing. If, if we're really to talk about the solution, time and speeding up time brings on supply and supply basic economics will bring down price so let's work on i mean i know the the housing minister's got some great ideas that he's pushing forward nothing's actually made much of a difference yet we've only made seven percent of their housing commitments uh in our province over the past six years so we need to fix things at all levels and so time means we need to have pre-approved projects we need to have pre-zoned neighborhoods. We need to have processes that are streamlined so we can get projects started within one year and not five years. And that's the current situation. We need to bring in uh, uh, certified professional consultants so we don't have to rely on, on municipal officials to, to do all the inspections. We, we just need to deliver homes to the market faster. It will bring price down. Uh, do you see that even starting to happen, though, given that the current mayor and council in Vancouver, one part of his platform was the 3-3-3 the three, three and, three and really uh, tightening up those timelines? We have a, a provincial government now that is saying if municipalities and cities don't fast track or don't do this faster, they're going to step in. So is there at least, does it appear that there is the will to do that? I, I think we can't deny that. And, and certainly our ABC council in Vancouver uh, platformed on that promise. Uh, we're hearing uh, the rumblings out of the province that they're effectively going to legislate uh, quotas or targets by municipalities where they're not meeting their housing requirements. Um, I, I want to give this new council a chance, that's for sure. Uh, they've got some big shoes to fill, um, but it's going to have to start with the reorganization of their bureaucracy because at all levels of government, we're taking all of this taxation in and we have no accountability. It's meant to cause more housing to be built. And I don't think any one of us believe that's happening. So we're bringing in this revenue, but the accountability piece of where's the housing is, is not being studied. So uh, let's hope that they can come through with some of these policies and they make a difference, but there's a, there's a lot of battles ahead. Uh, do you think, too, though, because it is something, not that they're hidden taxes, but unless uh, there's a, you study it like you have and you really break down those numbers, or unless you're buying and selling or, or renting and, and seeing them, it's not as though the property transfer tax and all of these taxes, they're not kind of in your face. So is it is it something, too, that governments get away with doing this because people make the assumption that this is just part of the price of housing? Yeah, and hence my statement taxation and government charges is the most identifiable cost increase. It, it's only identifiable if you study it. So I think you're right. Um, the consumers have been trained to understand that the market is tight, prices are going up, and, and there's always somebody to blame, but they're not putting the finger on it. And that's what this report's trying to do. It's trying to say the people that are actually responsible for making housing start 
are the ones that are causing the prices to go up. So we've got a total disconnect here, and it's something that's going to have to be solved. All right, Paul, thanks for joining the show today. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Jill. We have been hearing about wildfires in parts of B.C. It's also been a very tough wildfire season already in Alberta. Many people have been forced from their homes there. 38,000 people have been told to leave their homes already just by the middle of May because of flames and fires burning in Alberta. We also heard from that province's Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Services saying that assistance is now being handed out to residents who need it. More than 11,200 applications uh, have uh, been processed. Uh, More than $16.4 million in e-transfers have been uh, sent to evacuees. And more than $3.9 million in uh, debit cards have been distributed. So what does this mean when we look at the bigger picture and what is happening with wildfires, the intensity of those fires, and seeing them earlier on in the season? Dr. Christina Dahl is joining us now, Principal Climate Scientist for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Dr. Christina Dahl, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be with you. What are your thoughts on what we are seeing in that uh, in Western Canada, specifically right now, a lot of people are paying attention to the the fires, uh, the heat, uh, the smoke that's in the air. What does this tell us about kind of how the wildfires and the wildfire season is changing? Yeah, what's happening in Alberta right now with the just dozens and dozens of fires and thousands of people fleeing their homes and wondering you know, if they're going to come back to a home in safety, is just devastating. Um, and so first and foremost, my thoughts are with the people who are affected right now. These kinds of events, though, are becoming more common because of climate change. As we warm the planet, we tend to dry out our ecosystems and our forests. And all of that vegetation then becomes fuel for wildfires. So what we're seeing is fires that are burning larger areas and they're burning more severely. We have a longer fire season than we used to have. Um, And we're even seeing fires burning at higher elevations than we had in the past. So all of these can be linked back to human-caused climate change. Uh, And can all of it be linked back, though, as far as is it also not forest management and how we're kind of keeping the forest floors, uh, keeping that fuel from from being available for being for burning? Or is is there other things that are that are leading to this? Yeah, absolutely. So while climate change is playing a clear role, other factors are at play, too. And those include, as you just mentioned, the ways that we've been managing our forests, um, because we have, over the past century or 150 years, tended to suppress fires, put out fires when they start, um, our forests are no longer having this sort of low-intensity burning that's more natural that cleared out a lot of the vegetation and the undergrowth. Um, so that now when you get a spark in a forest, it's much more likely to, to cause a severe fire. We also know that development into wildfire-prone areas has been problematic as well as we have more people um, living in places where wildfires can occur. We see a, a rise in the number of fires that are sparked by people. And then when they are sparked, they're affecting more people because more people are, are living close to them. So there are a number of factors at play, even if climate change is a clear one. Um, there are other 
other things that we need to address as well. Uh, so what do you think needs to be kind of at the top of the list of addressing the, the fact and acknowledging that, that we are seeing these fires earlier and seeing these warmer temperatures earlier? Yeah, so there are a lot of things that need to be done to build resilience to wildfires. And, um, you know, that includes things like investing more in our forest health, um, reducing human-ignited wildfires, making sure people's um, health and safety is prioritized. And then in a study that my colleagues and I just released this week, we found that the world's largest fossil fuel companies and cement manufacturers bear some responsibility for um, these resilience-building measures as well because emissions from those companies are responsible for um, a greater portion of forest area being burned and a shift toward more flammable sorts of conditions um, across Western North America. And so we also need to be thinking about uh, holding these companies accountable um, as we start to address these major resilience building needs that we have, because they will be costly. Right. And what do you mean by that, by, by holding them accountable? Because, I mean, these are companies, uh, I get the connection being made there, but they are companies that are, are providing services and goods that, that people are, are, are wanting and needing. Absolutely. I mean, these companies are the, our main providers of things like oil and gas and coal. And so we all have benefited from their products and, and we've all used their products. At the same time, these companies have known for decades, as far back as 1965, it's been documented that they were aware of what the consequences of burning their products would be. And so instead of taking that information and changing their business models to rely on more cleaner energy sources, instead of taking that information and alerting the public and alerting policymakers to the dangers associated with fossil fuel burning, they did the exact opposite. For decades, they've doubled down on their business models. They have um, suppressed information from reaching the public. They have sowed deception and doubt among the public about the causes of climate change. And so when we think of ourselves, yes, we all use fossil fuels in our daily lives, I encourage folks to ask themselves, what choice have you had? And how has this uh, very deep-pocketed industry constrained the choices that we have had as consumers? And uh, while people are doing that and we're heading more into warmer temperatures and uh, the expectation that there will be more wildfires, uh, kind of going back to, to what you were saying about mitigating those factors, what else do you think needs uh, to be done uh, for people to be done physically on the ground as, uh, as we look even not just in the Pacific Northwest, but looking at other countries around the world that are also dealing with this? Yeah, I mean, we really need to be thinking about this globally because, um, you know, the emissions from companies that have produced fossil fuels for decades don't just affect Canadians or um, residents of the U.S. They go into the general atmosphere and affect everyone around the world. And, you know, our study is the first to link those emissions to the changes in wildfire that we're seeing in Western North America but we are curious to look around the world as well and see whether those same linkages are playing out in places um, like Spain or Greece that have seen major, major wildfire seasons um, in recent years. Uh, does the study also look at, at the types of forests and the difference in the forests and what we're seeing burning in the different countries? We did not look at different types of forests 
specifically. So we constrained our analysis to um, the western United States and southwestern Canada. So our study area doesn't actually include the boreal forest or the high-latitude forest where the wildfires are currently burning in Alberta. And the reason we did that was because we really wanted to test out this linkage between fossil fuel company emissions and um, changes in forest burned area. And we knew that that relationship was likely to be strong in that in the region of the world that we chose. But we know that similar dynamics are playing out in places like the boreal forests, as in northern Alberta, um, in places around the world as well. And one other thing that uh, I noticed or that, that you had mentioned or that the study was a, a focus of the study was uh, this uh, the idea of the ability of, of air to dry out land and ecosystems as temperatures rise. And, and again, looking at that fuel, the storage of carbon, uh, is that something that we're seeing change as well? Yes, definitely. So we looked at a metric called vapor pressure deficit which is essentially a measure of how effectively the air can dry out um, plants and trees by sucking moisture out of them. So if you imagine yourself on a very hot, dry day, um, you can imagine that um, all of that hot, dry air is pulling moisture out of the plants and leaving them drier and more stressed. So over the course of the past um, century or so, we have seen a rise in vapor pressure deficit across Western North America. And that's leaving our forests and other types of ecosystems more stressed and more vulnerable when a spark does occur. It's interesting research, uh, taking a look at not only uh, here in uh, Canada, but uh, the other countries dealing with this as well. Christina Dahl, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me.